Alright, let's do this. How are you data scientists and engineers? How are you business people? What's up nerds? Did you grasp that thing you were studying? This is Data Science at Home, the podcast about machine learning, artificial intelligence, and more good stuff. I am Francesco, I'll be your host for the next 30 minutes, so grab a cup of coffee and join me as we learn more about the topics we love most. Welcome back to another episode of Data Science at Home podcast. I'm Francesco, your host for the next 30 minutes or so. In uh, this episode, uh, we will speak about the roadmap to machine intelligence. It sounds a bit like one of those philosophical questions about AI, but it's not entirely like that. I am with Karen Gravel, member of the research staff at Nomenta, where he investigates how biological principles of intelligence can be translated into silicon. Hi, Karen, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you, Francesco? I'm good, I'm good. It's, it's, really, it's really nice to have you here on the show because today we're gonna speak about something that, as I said, can sound a bit philosophical, but actually we would also like to keep, you know, science in uh, as a first-class citizen in our conversation, don't you think? Yeah, I think uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, this uh, area has received some pushback, um, especially since a lot of people are skeptical of, you know, uh, combining uh, biology and, and and computer algorithms. But uh, I think it's a really ex- exciting endeavor and pursuit. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so fascinating because uh, we're going to speak about, you know, not only deep learning and all the things that are making AI, uh, you know, known to the widespread public, but also some very technical things that are kind of still a gray area for for us, for scientists. Um, So before we get there, uh, Karen, what is Numenta and uh, what is their goal? Numenta is a private research company based in Redwood City, California, and there are two primary goals. So the first is to understand how the neocortex works. The neocortex is the part of the brain that we associate with human level intelligence. And in, in all the work that we do there, we uh, publish our work in peer reviewed venues. So nothing is kept secret. We um, share everything with the community at large. And the second goal is to apply neocortical theory to AI. So we want to develop algorithms uh, and AI systems that operate on the same principles as the brain. The best way to think of the company is just as a private research lab. Instead of being in academia and getting uh, funding from uh, from government agencies, we we have private investors who believe who really believe in our long term goals, and um, that's how they keep us afloat. Wow, that sounds really cool. And uh, how many researchers are involved in the in the team? We currently have about uh, eight to ten full-time researchers. And that includes a couple folks who focus purely more on engineering goals, such as turning aspects of cortical theory into practical software and hardware solutions. In addition to that, we're also hosting uh, two interns right now, and we have two guest scientists. Oh, cool. So So it's a relatively small team. It's like, it's basically like a research lab. Right. Right. And and what's the usual, the typical background is like heterogeneous, very diverse, or they all share a common background? You know, um, even though we have such a strong focus on neuroscience, uh, we most people do act, do have more of an engineering background and not so much of a neuroscience background. Uh, and I think that that's important because a lot of the stuff we do, we're um, focusing on tr- uh, ultimately coming up with engineering-like solutions. Uh, and right. and and usually, you know, the people who work with us. Uh, they have strong interests in, in biology and neuroscience. And so uh, we get we get a good mix uh, of people with a lot of interdisciplinary um, 
interests, but primarily engineering, computer science, math, stats background. Wow, that's that's a nice mix, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's speak about true machine intelligence. These are three of the most fascinating words in the last 10 to 20 years. So true machine intelligence. First of all, let, let's define what does that mean? So what is true machine intelligence? What do we actually mean when we say that? And, um, and also another thing I would like to ask is what does that type of learning entail in practice? Everyone has their own definition of intelligence and it's, it's entirely subjective. Um, for me, I think there are, there are a couple of things that jump out to me. Uh, that constitute machine intelligence. Uh, one of them is being able to learn continually. So whatever knowledge uh, an agent stores, uh, it needs to constantly be updated to reflect that the world is also changing and nothing is really static. And so being able to adapt flexibly uh, to changing circumstances, I think that's really an aspect of intelligence, just as humans do. Uh, a second part is being a data efficient learner. Just as how humans uh, can learn a cat by seeing and understand what it is by seeing just one or two examples as a, as a baby, uh, an intelligent agent should be able to do the same and not rely on hundreds or thousands of training examples. So in terms of um, what, what type of learning this would entail in practice, for the first part, um, learning continually, I think this goes beyond the point neuron that we see in most artificial neural networks. So the point neuron is um, what you generally think of. Uh, it's, it's a neuron that takes uh, a weighted average of the inputs, you know, maybe applies a, a non-linearity to that, and um, and gives and returns an output. So, uh, learning continually is probably is reflected in, to some extent in the brain in the physiology of how how real neurons are structured. Um, so, incorporating those aspects, I think, will um, lead towards true machine intelligence. And for the second part, um, being more of a data efficient learner, I think um, physical learning of uh, of objects, meaning that you know you interact with the object as you learn about it, as opposed to looking at static images, is also on the roadmap to true machine intelligence. Because um, right now, just looking at static images uh, is is not really building up that in same internal representation that a baby gets as it, uh, you know, as it interacts with its pet cat or and so on. Spot on. I mean, there is also the opinion of Gary Marcus. Uh, I remember he was mentioning the fact that the baby does need to see a million times a cat, the same cat or, or million of cat, millions of cats to understand that the animal in front of her or him is a cat. Um, and so that's how they landed to one shot learning. But uh, still, that doesn't sound to me as true machine intelligence, but more on that later. Um, now, I've been reading quite a few published documents, papers, and scientific reports from, uh, from Nementa, and you guys always refer to the, to the neocortex. Uh, so what's, what's fancy of neocortex? What's, uh, what's happening there? So the neocortex is the outermost layer of the human brain. It's the squishy and scrumpled part that you, that you see when you close your eyes and try to visualize what a brain looks like. Neo is Latin for new, uh, which so basically it's the new cortex. So it's the part of the brain that evolved the latest on an evolutionary timescale. And it, it's believed to be the organ of intelligence since it's responsible for higher level thought, abstract reasoning, mathematics, engineering, language. What it's, now what's happening there is that it's building a predictive model of the world. It's, con it's constantly predicting um, what you are 
perceiving at any given point in time and what you're going to perceive next, meaning what you're going to hear, touch, or, or see next, even though you're not aware of most of these predictions. And, that, and that's um, really a useful aspect of the neocortex. Now, this is different from the old brain, which um, evolved earlier and sits below the neocortex in your brain, and which is responsible for more primitive things, uh, more basic things to keep you alive, such as controlling your breathing, your heart rate, uh, and your emotions. And so what are some of the most relevant features of the neocortex and how is this connected to, uh, to the theories that you guys are uh, evangelizing at, uh, at Numenta? There are two features uh, of the neocortex that I think are pretty relevant. Um, first is that uh, the neocortex is mostly non-hierarchical. So the classic view held by um, quite a few neuroscientists and a lot of machine learning practitioners is that uh, you, know, you get input, some sort of sensory input, such as um, you know, like visual input from the retina that goes to primary sensory areas that uh, recognize simple features such as edges. And then that moves on to, uh, that eventually reaches higher, higher sensory areas, which recognize entire objects. Now. This is actually wrong, and that's not how the neocortex does it, since the connections between um, areas in the neocortex is mostly non-hierarchical. In fact, about 40% of all connections uh, between all regions in the neocortex exist. And so this suggests that the neocortex is not processing inputs by building up gradually more complex representations as uh, deep neural networks do, but rather um, doing something else that's entirely non-hierarchical in nature. So that, that's the first one. Um, the, the, the second relevant feature is um, uniformity. Uh, the structure of the neocortex is remarkably similar throughout. Uh, it's just that different areas are connected to different sensory inputs. So what this means from, um, from, from what implication this has for our research at Numenta is that um, this suggests, this uniformity of structure suggests that there is a common mechanism or algorithm, if you will, that the brain is using to make sense of the world. So the, the way the human brain learns, I've been reading this quite a lot, uh, Karen, uh, but I'm sure that you know a thing or two more than me <laughs> in this particular uh, topic. Um, so I've been reading that the human brain learns a model of the world. This is something that you already mentioned uh, in the show and that the learning process is kind of distributed in the sense that there are there is not just one model, uh, but there are several models apparently that contribute to the one prediction that the, the brain needs to needs to have, right? So there is a theory uh, that has been interpreted or created, I don't know how to say, at Numenta, which goes under the name of the Thousand Brains Theory. So can you explain this theory in a nutshell? Yeah, so the Thousand Brains Theory is, uh, is concerns how the brain recognizes objects and other sensory inputs. So the neocortex, uh, the thousand brains theory is uh, applies to the neocortex. The neocortex, um, if you were to flatten it out, it, it, would, it would be this really thin sheet. And it's composed of um, cortical columns, which are uh, basically one millimeter squared um, in terms of width, and they run perpendicular to the surface. So there's a lot of these cortical columns and, and they all pretty much have the same structure. Now, what happens is um, as you're perceiving things, so as you're, as you're seeing things, as you're uh, touching things and hearing things, um, different cortical columns are receiving different sensory inputs. And what each cortical column is doing is it's trying to build up a complete model of what it is that's being perceived. And so, um, you know, some cortical columns, columns might only get input from the retina. Some might only get input from um, certain fingers uh, as you touch things. But uh, but these columns do have lateral connections between them, which allow them to communicate with each other and vote. And so what happens is that 
um, these columns as they get their inputs and they're they're trying to figure out what what's being perceived. They're also communicating with each other, and, and in effect, you get this uh, basically a, some sort of consensus algorithm, which is voting on what exactly is happening. Now, this is very different from um, how a lot of machine learning practitioners think about um, object recognition. There is no one place where all this information that's being perceived is coming back. Uh, such as in a higher layer in a neural network, all of this information is entirely distributed and you have all these different um, cortical columns, thousands, hundreds and thousands of them, which each build up a, a complete model um, that converge to exactly what it is that you're perceiving. Hence the name, the thousand brains theory, because you have all these different models. If you want to, let's say, emulate uh, this behavior in silicon, uh, I assume that we can take, uh, and I'm really, I'm really being naive now, we can take like a thousand deep learning models, let them specialize on 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 one aspect of the phenomenon that we are trying to predict, and and let, let them reach consensus. Would that work? Uh, I don't think that would work, uh, and the reason for that is because of uh, exactly how the cortical um, how each cortical column is modeling um, objects. So just a little bit of background. So. Um, your brain has enterinal, uh, has grid cells in the enterinal cortex, which is not part of the neocortex. And that's basically representing your location in a space. So if you close your eyes at, uh, and try to walk around your house, you'll probably have a good idea of exactly where you are because you have this internal um, map that tells you where you are in your house. Um, and so similarly, in uh, cortical columns, uh, as they build up these models of objects, they also build up these sort of maps of objects where as you're, as you're say you're running your hand along a pen, you know exactly where your hand is, where your finger is relative to that pen. And uh, that allows you to manipulate the pen, um, do a bunch of other things with the pen. You, you have this really, um, the, this rich model of the pen. And so I don't, I don't think that um, a bunch of uh, deep learning models uh, stacked together would be able to replicate this sort of structure that's, that, that evolution discovered over time to, to exist in, in the neocortex. However, recently, there were, um, Jeff Hinton, who's considered the godfather of deep learning, did release uh, a paper a couple of months ago, which talked about a model he proposed, GLOM, uh, which is a continuation of his capsules work, which really tries to get at this idea of um, what, what, what we refer to as reference frames of objects. Um, and so this GLOM model tries to model these reference frames uh, where uh, each, where, where he's recognizing um, uh, parts of objects, uh, which uh, and 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 object holes uh, in connection to each other, sort of how these um, grid cells in the neocortex are doing with with objects that you perceive. Except there are there are a ton of dis uh, there are a couple of dis discrepancies um, that uh, that that still are different from how the, how the brain is doing it. So one, there's still this strict hierarchy where early parts in in his in the glom neural network are recognizing um, parts, and then later layers are recognizing whole objects, and that strict hierarchy, like I mentioned earlier, doesn't exist in the neocortex. Uh, every part is modeling the object at the whole. And also um, the neocortex is learning through movement and interaction as it builds up these uh, models of objects. Uh, but GLOM is a computer vision model. So it's entirely based on uh, 2D static images. But regardless, I think um, Jeff Hinton is thinking about some really interesting uh, and important problems that AI hasn't solved yet. Absolutely. And we'll definitely uh, add some of these references in the show notes of this episode on the official website, datascienceatome.com. 
Hey folks, if building software is your passion, you love ThoughtWorks Technology Podcast. It's a podcast for techies by techies. Their team of experienced technologists take a deep dive into a tech topic that's piqued their interest. It could be how machine learning is being used in astrophysics or maybe how to succeed at continuous delivery. They're always coming across fascinating ways technology is advancing and love to share what they learn. Whatever the topic, the discussions are always lively, informative, and opinionated. The team of co-hosts are experienced technologists from across ThoughtWorks and include ThoughtWorks CTO Dr. Rebecca Parsons and renowned writer and speaker Neil Ford. Each episode, the podcast features a guest or two to talk about their particular passion and areas of expertise. Past guests have included eminent technologists like Martin Fowler, Mark Richards, Dana Boyd, and many others. If you like this show, I think you should give ThoughtWorks Technology Podcast a try. To find out more, just search for ThoughtWorks Technology Podcast on your podcast platform of choice. And of course, make sure you subscribe. So what is learning for the human brain? Like, how, how does it know that a prediction, for example, is pretty off or or very accurate? Because in silico, we have, uh, you know, loss functions that we are minimizing. And so we can measure how off that prediction is comparing it to ground truth. How does it work for the human brain? So uh, learning is equivalent to creating new synapses. So synapse is a connection between two neurons. And um, since the brain, the brain is very sparse, meaning that a lot of the most connections between any two neurons don't exist. And so when, when, when you learn something new, um, you a new synapse is created between two neurons. And, um, and, and that's basically, then that's a connection which um, to some extent stores um, that new knowledge that you've acquired. Um, now this is very different from um, artificial neural networks that uh, rely on backpropagation since they're constantly changing a bunch of, they're basically changing all their parameters at one time. Whereas uh, the brain is just creating um, these new connections and most other connections are left unchanged. I'm trying to say most of the connections in the brain are unchanged and it's just a few new synapses that um, uh, are created. Now in terms of um, how the brain knows if its predictions are off or accurate. So your brain is learning a predictive model of the world. Um, like I mentioned earlier, it's constantly predicting what you're going to see next. So uh, when I walk into my bedroom after a long day, I expect to see my study table uh, with a chair next to it and a bunch of magazines that are always lying on my desk. And my brain is predict predicting that I'm going to see those even, even when I haven't walked in yet. Um, and so, and so, but if it doesn't, then it knows that, hey, there's something off here and it'll divert my attention to that right away, right? Like if the, if the chair legs are broken or if the magazines are missing or something like that. <laughs> and more specifically, what's happening is that uh, the circuitry in your brain is depolarizing certain cells. Uh, before I walk into my bedroom, uh, it's depolarizing those cells, which basically means it's making them more likely to become active once it, once it uh, sees those things. Um, but if those, if, if something's off in my bedroom, then um, those cells don't become active. And instead, what you have is a bunch of other cells, a large population of cells all fire at the same time. So you have this massive uh, amounts of activity in your brain. And that's, and that's what causes your, your attention to focus on whatever is, is off. So that's, that's the, uh, that's the signal that tells your brain, Hey, some, something's wrong here. Right. So, well, very far away from uh, loss function minimization, for sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned the concept of sparsity already a couple of times. Um, the human neocortex, uh, I believe, to be highly sparse. At least that's what I read. But uh, why is that? Is there some hidden uh, feature from nature 
or someone else? What's what's the reason? So when, when you say sparsity, there are actually um, two things, two types of sparsity that can exist and actually do exist in the brain. So one is sparsity and connectivity, meaning that um, not all neurons are connected to each other and only a very sparse subset of neurons are actually connected to each other, have a synapse between them because, um, you know, the brain has physical constraints because it does exist in, a, in the three-dimensional world. And, and can you imagine if uh, the brain were like a fully connected graph where all neurons are connected to each other, then, I mean, that would be an immense amount of, um, of synapses that would need to exist. And that would take up a huge amount of space. And there's no way your brain would be able to fit within your skull. So that, I mean, that's one reason why you have um, sparsity in connectivity, uh, but you're probably uh, more interested in sparsity in activity, which, which, is, which means that very small percentage of the neurons are ever active at any point in time. Uh, and I think there, there are a couple of reasons for this. So um, sparsity allows for uh, energy efficiency since most of the brain is um, turned off at any point in time. That means that less energy is required for it to operate. So the brain uses just about 20 watts of energy per day, which is pretty impressive considering all the things um, we're able to make sense of. Um, that's one reason. Another, another uh, reason which I speculate could be due to evolutionary pressure for the brain. So, um, you know, when units turn on due to spikes or action potentials, this causes uh, heat energy, right? And if most neurons in the brain are active, that that means that uh, the brain, uh, the, the temperature in your brain would rise a lot, right? Uh, and and that's not really and that and that's really bad. Think about how when you run a very CPU intensive program on your laptop, um, uh, the laptop heats up and then your fans turn on to keep the temperature down. We you know, we don't have fans in our brain that can do that. So um, so that so that means that if if our temperature uh, if if too many neurons are active at any, any given time, the temperature will increase, and and that's bad because you know a two two three degree increase in temperature causes a fever. A ten degree increase in temperature could probably kill us. So those are, those are the reasons I, I would speculate for why we have sparsity. Well, it makes perfect sense. I mean, though regardless of the speculation, I mean it, it makes absolute sense. What happens when we let's say replicate this sparsity in uh, in mathematical models like uh, like artificial neural networks uh, i believe that there are some research groups that have been playing with sparsity with the parameter of sparsity or probably you guys at nomenta is there any result that you would like to share uh, out of these sparse models yeah, uh, we have been working a lot with uh, sparse neural networks, and they do offer a lot of um, benefits. So the, the main idea um, when you train sparse neural networks, the, the main the main there are two main advantages. One is that there's a smaller memory footprint. So when you have large dense networks that are trained on whatever task, they can be distilled into smaller sparse ones, which have fewer parameters, although the same the same um, the same depth in your network and the same layer width. Uh, these are easier to store in memory. So uh, that's, that's really great from a memory perspective. Uh, and, and they're able to achieve the same accuracy. So you're not, you're not losing much on, the, on that front either. Uh, and the second thing is uh, you, have, you get faster inference uh, through sparsity. So when you have uh, a regular neural network and you're doing your forward pass, uh, you know, you're usually doing matrix multiple, you are doing matrix multiplications. And now if you have sparsity in either your weights or um, your, to your parameters or your inputs, your representations, then you have a lot of zeros uh, in your matrix multiplication. And so, and so sure. all these zeros, you can just ignore all those entries altogether. And so at Numenta, we've been focusing a lot on block sparsity where we assume that um, you know, 
only certain blocks of the weight matrix are actually uh, are non-zero and everything else is zero. And so, and, and we've customized FPGAs to be compatible with this assumption. And this has led to huge speed ups. Since now we're not doing full matrix multiplications anymore. We're only multiplying, um, I guess, sub matrices together. Now, and there's actually been a lot of interest in uh, this sort of hardware acceleration um, via sparsity. So NVIDIA just released a specialized computer chip recently to deal with sparse operations. And a lot of other hardware manufacturers have also followed suit. So, so yeah, faster inference has shown a lot of um, promising results uh, with sparsity. And this goes across domains or, or applications, right? Like this is not specific to, for example, computer vision or, I don't know, predicting, uh, you know, running some numerical prediction, genetic numerical prediction. Does it generalize across domain, this sparsity parameter or feature of the network? So I, I believe that, for example, in, uh, in computer vision, there is a lot of redundancy in the data. Uh, think about a video stream, uh, the frames that are you know, close to each other, they repeat, replicate a lot of information for which sparsity could be helpful there, or well, the impact of sparsity would be uh, a great in, in, that particular domain, in that particular case. But if you are dealing with, uh, I think, high entropy data, that would not be the case, right? We haven't tried this out in too many domains yet. We've been working mostly um, on ImageNet with ImageNet experiments, training um, mostly uh, ResNets, uh, other sorts of deep convolutional neural networks. Uh, and there it's had great, um, it's shown great speed ups uh, because there probably is a lot of redundancy in, in image data. There are a lot of pixels that probably aren't relevant to the task at hand. Um, but it would be interesting to see how this transfers over to other tasks, such as language, where you probably have less redundancy in your data overall. Karen, I would like to speak about something that uh, is uh, some kind of a problem, especially with uh, artificial neural networks, uh, that is that goes under the name of catastrophic forgetting, right? Uh, so do you mind, uh, first of all, introducing the concept to, uh, to, to the listeners out there? And, uh, and then I'm going to move to the second question, like what happens with Ethnomenta with catastrophic forgetting? Catastrophic forgetting is uh, a phenomenon that we see in uh, neural networks that are trained continually. So basically, uh, when they're trained to do, say a, tr a network is trained to do one task, right? Say it's classifying different breeds of dogs. So it knows your Labrador from your Dalmatian and so on. Then when you want to train it to do another task, such as um, learn different species of birds, you're going to train it to do that via your standard um, gradient descent methods. And it's going to completely forget how to do the first task because it's optimizing entirely for the second task. And so this is called catastrophic forgetting. Um, and so regular neural networks, uh, you, and the reason this happens is because, um, you know, deep neural networks use what are, what I referred to previously as point neurons. They're uh, applying a weighted average to the input and um, they're getting their output from that. Uh, and when you train via backpropagation, uh, all the, all the network parameters are updated simultaneously. Right, that, that's just how the algorithm works. So a neural network, really the knowledge, the quote unquote knowledge that it has is defined through um, the weight, it, through, through, its, uh, through its weights and biases. And if you're updating them all at the same time, well, you're overriding all the information that your neural, neural network knew about dogs before it started to learn about birds. And so um, this is essentially why catastrophic forgetting happens in neural networks. Is there a way to mitigate this? Because I know, for example, whenever I face catastrophic forgetting, uh, you know, by training a network on a very small 
number of samples, for example, and then by increasing the batch, usually you you know tend to mitigate the problem of catastrophic cutting for batch learning, of course. Is there any other form of mitigation to or actually remove the, the problem completely? So Numenta, we're really interested in uh, continual learning uh, in humans and why catastrophic forgetting happens in deep neural networks. In, in human brains, in the neocortex, we see pyramidal neurons, which have a very different structure from the point neurons in deep neural networks. These pyramidal neurons have different dendrite segments, which each recognize different patterns. And uh, when learning occurs in each, in each of these neurons, um, the dendrite seg- only certain dendrite segments are modified um, their, 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 their synapses are modified and uh, most other segments are uh, untouched. So, uh, so whatever was learned by the other segments, it doesn't get overwritten when uh, you try to learn something new. Now these dendrites also act as pattern recognizers so that they, um, they can depolarize the cell and make it more likely to become active uh, if a certain input pattern is recognized. And so the, the effect at the population level of this is that you have a very sparse subset of um, neurons that end up becoming active uh, at any time. And so you're ultimately, you have subnetworks of neurons that are uh, trained to identify dogs or cats and so on. So the effect of these dendrites is that um, they invoke subnetworks. And, and, and this is really uh, a key idea because when you're training subnetworks, you're only using certain uh, neurons and and most of them are unused. There's a lot of work out there right now uh, which uh, trains subnetworks of neurons for uh, doing continual learning tasks. They're not too brain inspired, but they're really but they are converging to very similar solutions to what our uh, dendrite models uh, are converging to. So that's really exciting. And in fact, right now we even have an intern at Numenta that's modeling dendrites in pyramidal neurons for multitask learning. And he's been getting some pretty impressive results. So that's that's certainly related to uh, continual learning that we're tackling too. Karan, we will ever get close to some form of AGI, artificial general intelligence. You know, I'm an optimist. So my answer is yes. I mean, if you bring back someone just from the year 1800 and show them that, you know, now we can fly above the clouds from London to New York in less than six hours and that we can walk and we use these um, thin rectangles uh, to talk to people on the other side of the world. And then they, and then we uh, slip them into our pockets and you show them that, you know, we can train these simple algorithms that just iterate between doing matrix multiplications and non and applying nonlinear functions and that they can go and beat the world's best go and chess players. Then the, you know, this person that would be absolutely astonished that uh, that we're doing this. So I think it's really hard to um, to predict the future. And generally, the, the future tends to um, be a lot more impressive than what we thought it would be. So, so I'm an optimist in that we will reach AGI. Also, nowadays, the the rate of change is just accelerating so fast that, you know, things that we thought are were pretty much impossible were are, are now are now being um are now becoming reality. So, so my answer to that is yes. But of course, I think, um, you know, what this AGI will look like, it's unclear. At Numenta, we're really, uh, we really think that, uh, you know, the, the brain is cl- a clear form of intelligence and we can't really build uh, intelligence without replicating the brain. But since, uh, you know, since AGI will ultimately rely uh, will probably be something that's uh, silicon-based and not carbon-based, as the brain is. There probably will be some discrepancies. So, um, what what exactly that AGI will look like? Um, it's not it's not entirely clear yet. 
And speaking about the tools that we are using, tools, I mean, of course, mathematical tools, not just the hardware. Um, I'm referring to the GPUs and, you know, all the fancy FPGA, the fancy hardware that we have out there. But do you think that the concept of deep learning, for example, is aligned with, uh, uh, you know, the final objective of uh, AGI or are we doing something wrong? I think that um, deep learning is a very powerful tool. I don't think it's going to get us all the way there because I think there are a lot of aspects of intelligence uh, and, and what humans do that uh, deep neural networks aren't exactly able to capture. Uh, and we can, we can talk more about that if you'd like. Um, but, but I think I just, uh, you know, deep neural networks are really good at pattern recognition. And, uh, but they are very data uh, intent. They require a lot of data and compute power. Uh, and those are two things that the brain really doesn't require. Um, so I think uh, there, are, there will be limitations that we'll see, but I think it will ultimately be a pretty useful tool in, in our journey towards AGI. Well, that was very, very clear as an answer. I'm, uh, I'm of your opinion, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> Karen, this was uh, an amazing conversation. I think that the listeners of Data Sensaton podcast and will enjoy as much as I did uh, having this conversation with you. Uh, in the show notes of this episode, of course, we are going to report also the links uh, to reach out uh, to Nomenta. Uh, the official website and also some very very interesting documentation that you guys have been uh, writing and publishing so far so uh, really cool really cool work there thanks for being here yeah thanks francesco i really enjoyed um, uh, talking with you today and uh, sharing uh, some of the work that we've been doing over the last uh, few months and years you've been listening to data science at home podcast be sure to subscribe on itunes stitcher or podbean to get new fresh episodes for more please follow us on instagram twitter and facebook or visit our website at datascienceathome.com